Welcome to the Creekside Community Church Podcast. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we want to provide you with a safe place to explore the Christian faith. If you are a Christian, we want to provide you with resources to help you grow in your faith and ultimately serve Jesus more effectively. For more information or to partner with us, visit our website at creekside.cc. Subscribe so that you don't miss any of our messages. We hope this content helps you take your next step with Jesus. So uh, Tuesday morning this week, I decided to go on a long bike ride. So uh, I loaded up my bike. Uh, I decided not to ride around here. I've heard that the Cherry Creek Trail is actually like really famous, really nice trail. And I also heard at one point that it starts in Castlewood Canyon. So I was like, okay, load up my bike, went to Castlewood Canyon off the 86th entrance. And I knew exactly where to start because we've hiked at Castlewood a lot of times. And at that homestead, if you guys have ever been to the homestead trail, if you look to the left, you see this concrete path turn around down. I was like, oh, that must be the bike path, this famous bike path. Great. So I load up my bike, get to Castlewood Canyon, unload my bike, get my backpack on, my helmet on, I'm ready to go, I'm trying to be safe. Start pedaling down, like, this is beautiful, this is awesome. And then the path, all of a sudden, after 200 yards, turns into weeds. (laughs) So just so you know, that path has not been completed yet. Uh, It's not a path to anywhere. It's a path to a dead end. So then I had to turn around, go up the hill, load my bike up, and uh, it worked out in the end. I drove over to Hidden Mesa Open Space parking lot, then took the bike path from there. Great time. But it uh, started off with a dead end. Now, when you're bicycling, it's just kind of something funny to laugh at. But have you ever felt like you were doing exactly what God had called you to do? Going down the path, he asked you to go down, and then you had a dead end. It's a much bigger deal when we're not talking about bicycling anymore. Instead, we're talking about maybe your family situation. Maybe you've always planned or wanted to get married, and that's not working out. That can be difficult. Maybe you wanted kids, and that's not working out. You feel like you're doing exactly what God called you to do, and you're facing a dead end, your family situation. Or it could be for you with work. You feel like this is the career God called you to. You've been obedient. You've been going down this path, and then it just ends in a dead end. You get laid off, or you're passed over again and again for advancement. Or maybe financially for you, maybe that's the concern. You feel like you've been faithful, you've been as generous as you can be along the way, and now there's not enough to pay for the bare minimum. What do you do when you feel like you're doing exactly what God has called you to do, and you hit a dead end? What's going on? Today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture where by all human accounts, from human perspective, it looks like the Israelites are doing exactly what God called them to do, and they face a dead end. And so we're going to look at this passage together, and we're going to look at what happens next. And I think it's going to be uh, encouraging and hopefully um, insightful for you when you face similar things in your life. But first, some review before we jump into the text for today. Uh, By the way, the text for today is Exodus chapter 13 starting in verse 17. So if you brought your Bible and if you'd like to follow along in your own copy, uh, that's great. You can go ahead and turn there now. Uh, but some quick review. We're in week eight of the book of Exodus. And uh, actually, Kirk asked me a few weeks back, 
Um, he's like, hey, when are we getting out of Egypt? <laughs> uh, so today, today, my friends, we are getting out of Egypt, finally. Uh, we're looking at the crossing of the Red Sea. But we've been in Egypt for a long time in this book. This is uh, the second book of the Bible, second book of the Old Testament. And it records how God's people started off in Egypt, and they're growing as a people, and they grow so numerous that the Egyptians start getting very fearful and nervous. They're like, these guys are going to take us out. We need to be careful, cautious. And so they put the people into slavery first, and the people keep multiplying. So then they begin to practice genocide against them. And Pharaoh eventually commands that every single baby boy be thrown into the Nile River. One of those baby boys is instead of thrown directly in the river, put in a basket. And he's placed in the river, and he survives. God protects him, and he's actually adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. And he grows up, and eventually he leaves Egypt. He's in the wilderness for a number of years. He gets married, has kids. But God calls him in the wilderness back, and he says, I want you, Moses, to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And so we've read already about these encounters, this conflict between Moses and his brother Aaron and Pharaoh, And God, through Moses, has brought ten plagues on the Egyptians, plague after plague. And finally, with the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt, Pharaoh says, okay, go. And the people leave. And that's where we pick up the story now. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. God knows they're not ready for direct warfare yet, so he brings them a different way. So he led the people around uh, toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness, and the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid, then you must take my bones with you from this place. It's really amazing when you think about that they've kept Joseph's bones for 400 years because he said, please promise that you'll, you'll bury me with my fathers in the land of Canaan. So they bring his bones with them. They set out from Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. So God leads the people out of the land and he leads them through this pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And we think that this symbolizes God's presence. It's the same thing we're going to see later on when we get to Mount Sinai. When God comes to the top of the mountain, he comes with fire and in a cloud. So these things come to symbolize God's presence with his people. And I love this because it says that, that God does not only saves his people right? Pharaoh said, go. It's not like God's like, okay, I saved you. Have fun. No, when God saves the people, he also guides them. God is faithful to guide the people that he saves. And so he leads the people. He goes before them. He shows them the exact right way to go. And you know what? He does the same thing for us today. In fact, to an even more intense degree. A lot of people read the story and be like, well, that'd be convenient. I would love to wake up and have just like this pillar of cloud to walk around and follow. Go this way. Okay, that's clear. And yet, according to Jesus, we have something better. Here's what Jesus says in the New Testament. 
He's talking to his disciples the night before he was to be crucified. He says to his followers, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. So God led his people in the Old Testament, but he had to lead them externally. God was with his people, but Jesus is saying, if you choose to follow me, I will send you the spirit, another helper or counselor. And now he's not just with you, he is in you directing you, speaking to you, empowering you, slowly transforming you. And so we actually have something better than this pillar of fire or this cloud. God doesn't simply save us through Jesus and then take his hands off. He sends us his spirit to lead us, just like he led the people then, but even better. And so I just can't help but ask the question, He's given you his spirit. Are you listening? Are you listening? It'd be like going on a long road trip, putting that destination in your GPS. It's like, okay, turn right. And you keep going straight. And the GPS is like, turn around, make a U-turn. You keep going straight. And then you don't arrive. You're like, God, what happened? We need to be faithful to listen to the Spirit. He's speaking. He wants to speak to us, to direct us. So the first question is just simply, are are you listening? Are you listening? Don't ignore the Spirit's voice in your life. Let's pick up the story. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back. Turn around, make a U-turn, and camp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal Zephon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say, they're wandering around in the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. Uh, pause real quick. We've already talked about this dynamic of Pharaoh doing his own thing, and then God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I know that can be disturbing to think about, um, but it's for a bigger purpose, for salvation. And like we talked about before, God is not doing anything to Pharaoh that he has not already done himself. Uh, Pharaoh has done the same kind of action over and over again. And you actually even see that in his passage, right? Um, Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they're wondering the wilderness has boxed them in, and then God will harden his heart. And in our own uh, connect group that meets at our house, um, Janelle came up with this great analogy of thinking of it as like clay that's moldable. It's almost like Pharaoh's heart starts this way, where he could change his heart, but he shapes his heart in a certain direction against God. And what does God do? He simply hardens this shape that Pharaoh has already chosen to have. Does that make sense? God is simply confirming the direction that Pharaoh has already gone over and over again. Uh, there's a lot more we could say about that, but we've already spoken some about that. So if that's disturbing, go back a couple weeks and you can listen to the message. Let's go on with the story. 
Uh, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We've released Israel from serving us. We lost 100% of our forced labor in one day. Who's going to do all this work? Who's going to make us bricks? So Pharaoh got his chariot ready, took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. So what's so fascinating to me about this story is that it looks so different depending on which perspective you look at it from. Again, if you look at this on a purely human perspective, it looks like Israel leaves Egypt, they go one direction, they stop, they turn around, they go back the other direction, they stop. The Egyptians are like, let's get our forced labor back and come after them. That's what it looks like from a purely human perspective. It looks like God has led them straight into a dead end. And I think this serves as a warning for us. Don't be too quick to look at your immediate circumstances to determine whether or not you're being faithful. I think we do this all the time. Life's not going my way, therefore, I must be doing something wrong. Perhaps I'm being unfaithful. Maybe there's sin in my life that I need to pray about. Those things could be, but do not be too quick to jump from immediate circumstances to whether or not you're obedient. The Israelites were being 100% faithful, and it looked like failure, right? It looks like they're confused, they're boxed in, Egypt is coming back after them. Think about Jesus' own life and ministry. Was Jesus faithful to God's call, to going where the Spirit led him? I think he was. But when you look at his life, it goes from looking very successful. There's thousands of people following him, coming to hear his teaching. And then Jesus starts saying some hard things, some difficult teachings. And people start leaving in droves. And eventually by the end, how many people are following Jesus? It goes down from thousands to 12 to basically none at the end of his life. But Jesus should never have been like, oh, I've lost all my followers. I must, be, I must be doing something wrong. Right? Don't be too quick to look at your immediate life circumstances to determine whether or not you're being faithful. They can be very misleading. The Israelites were 100% faithful, and it looked like failure. And the same thing can happen to you. Your immediate circumstances might make it seem like failure right now. That does not mean that you're not being faithful. It does not mean that God's done with you. It might mean that he's about to do something. As Pharaoh approached, <clears throat> the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. The Israelites were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
Slavery is better than death, Moses. Thanks a lot. That's what they're saying. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. See the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you must be quiet. <laughs> I feel like that was Moses' addition, addition at the end of that. I don't know if God said that. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. And as for you, lift your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And then the angel of God, who was going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind him them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night and neither group came near the other all night long. So getting ready to pass through the sea. And I love how God not only leads the people from the front, but protects them from behind. I hope that encourages you. God not only leads us through the spirit, he protects us from behind what we can't see. And God's about to do this miracle. And I think we need to keep in mind how the other plagues worked. If you go back, you'll see that the plagues were not simply God like showing off his power. They were to demonstrate his identity as the creator. God is the one who brought all this into being. And so he is the one who has control still over all of it. That's part of the purpose of the plagues, to reveal God's identity as creator. And I think we're about to see the same thing here. Because if you go back to the creation account... <clears throat> And this is lost on us because we're not so afraid of the water as they used to be. But you have to remember, in the ancient world, the waters and the seas, they were a place of chaos and death. They were something you couldn't control. And if you got caught out there, you could very easily die. That's why in most ancient cultures, the sea was considered a god or a goddess of great power, something to be feared. People were terrified of the oceans. And so, if you go back to Genesis 1, where it says, that God said, let the waters under the skies be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In the ancient world, this idea of God just speaking and separating the water and causing dry land and then seas to be separated from each other, that was amazing. Astounding, and it was proof that, oh my goodness, God is, God is so powerful. This is what he can do simply by speaking. And so here, once again, he's going to do it, right? God's going to act, and the sea is going to divide. Here's what it says. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night, and he turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and they went into the sea after them. 
And during the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So God parts the seas, revealing his identity as the creator God. This too is also why when you turn the New Testament, and there's a few times, it happens more than once, where Jesus is with the disciples, they're on the, the lake, there's a big storm and they're worried for their lives and Jesus calms it. And the disciples totally freak out. The disciples were amazed and said, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. You see the parallel? Wind and the seas. Back here, the Savior God uses wind to divide the seas. The wind and the seas obey, the wind and the seas obey him. For the disciples, this was like, this man must be God himself. So God provides a path through the sea. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant, Moses. It's interesting because in the story, you see this, this, this change. They start out terrorized about the Egyptians. They're afraid of the Egyptians. And by the end, they're no longer scared of the Egyptians. They fear the Lord. This is not talking about the terror kind of fear, like... <gasps> This is talking about the deep, reverential, oh my goodness, you are so great and so powerful. Who am I to stand before you? Who am I that you would save me? So God provides a path through the sea for the people. And the application is simply, when you know the way, you need to take it. One of the commentaries I was reading as I was preparing for this message talked about how it's interesting because it does not record how the Israelites passed through the sea. What I mean is, it could be that some of those Israelites, by this time, were very confident. They had seen these plagues in Egypt. They knew God's power. They trusted the Lord fully. Maybe some of the Israelites, you know, walked through the waters 100% confidently and like, wow, this is awesome. Thanks, God. This is great. So cool. It could be said that some of the Israelites were terrified as they pass the sea. Are these walls of water going to stay there? <laughs> Are the Egyptians going to catch us? Are we going to make it? In other words, some of them were walking like this, like, yeah. and some of them were walking like this, right? 
See, sometimes we mistake confidence for faith. Some of the Israelites maybe were confident, some of them not so confident. But all of them had enough trust to walk through the sea on dry ground. Don't mistake confidence for faith. Uh, yesterday, <clears throat> I was trying to teach our oldest two daughters how to ride bikes. Um, they already know how to ride the balance bikes, and they're really good with training wheels. But yesterday, we pulled out one of the bikes that doesn't have any training wheels on it. And Ada and Anna were trying this out for the first time. And so I was doing the thing where, you know, you hold the, the seat and push them along, get them to pedal, and then let go. And it was interesting because uh, Ada was actually pretty confident. She's usually more cautious, but she was getting it. And she was, she was doing it confidently. She was like, yeah, I got this. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Anna, not so much. Anna was like, I need your help. I need your help. <laughs> it's like, it's okay. You got this. Keep pedaling. And she keep pedaling. And she was okay. And then a split second, each other. She's like, oh, get me down. I need your help. It's like, no, you're okay. Keep pedaling. It's kind of silly. But the point is, they both rode their bikes at the end of the day. When Jesus called people to him, he said, follow me. He said, follow me. I think some of the disciples did that confidently, some of them not so confidently, some of them more fearfully. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, are you following Jesus? Whether that's confidently or fearfully, are you following him? Are you on the bike? Are you pedaling? Confidence level is not as important as we may think. And so this is where we get the main idea for the message today. God makes the way, but you have to take it. God makes the way, but you have to take it. I heard a fictitious story a number of years ago that stuck with me. Uh, some of you have probably heard it as well. It's about a Christian man who lived in an area where there was flooding. And uh, on the news, they gave an evacuation order and said, hey, floodwaters are coming. You got to get out of here. The man said, nope, I'm going to trust God. He's going to save me. The water started rising. The firemen came around, knocked on everyone's door one last time, knocked on this man's door. He answered like, what are you doing here? You got to get out of here. The floodwaters are rising. Like, it's going to cover your house. You need to get out of here. The man says, nope, I'm going to trust God. He's going to save me. The waters keep rising. The man climbs up on his roof, sitting on his roof and emergency boats now are driving around. One comes by and sees him and says, get on the boat, come on, let's go. He says, no, 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 no. I'm gonna trust in God. He's gonna save me. The waters keep rising. Gets to the top of his roof. The waters keep rising. He's up to his knees. Helicopter comes by. Drop a ladder. Grab the ladder. No, no, no. God's going to save me. And the fictitious story says that that night the man dies. And he's in heaven. And he's talking to God. He said, I trusted you. Why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent you firemen. I sent you a boat. I even sent you a helicopter. Right? I did save you. God makes the way, but you have to take it. God parted the sea. 
God provided a way of salvation, but the Israelites had to walk through it. And ultimately, we see in the New Testament, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He ministered to people. He died, and we believe he rose again, conquering sin and death and the devil and evil. And through that, we believe he makes a way for salvation for everyone, that the price has been paid for forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's like this gift that God has paid for completely and given to every single person. He makes a way, but you have to take it. God makes a way, but you have to take it. And that has nothing to do with earning salvation any more than unwrapping a gift on Christmas morning would be paying for the gift, right? God provides the way, but you have to take it. So are we taking his way? When you know the way, take it. So I don't know how, going back to that opening question, when you face a dead end, what does that mean? What do you do? I don't know your particular circumstances, but I do know based off of what Jesus did, that God loves you and he is with you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is in you and wants to empower you. And that does not always mean life will be easy. In fact, it means almost the complete opposite, unfortunately. In our connection groups, if you joined us in the first hour, uh, we were looking at the text we looked at last week, last Sunday, where Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. When God sent Jesus, that included the way of suffering, right? He went to the cross to accomplish God's mission. Now, God is not calling any of us to go to a cross to pay for people's salvation. That was something Jesus did for once and all. But he does say, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. When God sends us, it oftentimes will include, like it did for Jesus, going through a path that includes suffering. But not meaningless suffering. Suffering for the sake of other people's good. And so again, this is why it's so important to not look to circumstances to say whether or not you're following the way of the Lord. Because being faithful to him might just cost you something. It might cost a lot. But that's not the end of the story. God makes a way. God made a way for his people. He makes a way for us. And so what is the proper response to all of this? Well, what do the people do next? They cross the Red Sea and they stop They pull out their guitars and their drums. Just kidding. They didn't have guitars. But they do sing a song of praise and celebration. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. And I will exalt him. 
Why are they singing together? Why are they praising together? Why is this the right thing for them to do? I think this is the proper response when God does something great in our lives and our proper response because of the great things God has already done for the world and for all of us. The proper response is praise. Why? A couple reasons. Praising is something that is not just individual, but it's together. When we sing songs together, it's this beautiful thing where we're all united because we're saying the same words. And it's this holistic thing where, yes, we're thinking about the words, but music also touches our emotions. It's worshiping God with our hearts as well as our bodies, and it's together. So that's something that few other things can do to unite us together in praise of God, which is why uh, we always sing songs together and why that's a good thing to do together, even though some of you don't like it and some of you feel like you don't have good voices. Um, your voice is not the point. <laughs> the point is God, what he's done and celebrating that together, being together in that praise. So I'm not gonna read this whole song. It's a beautiful passage of scripture if you'd like to read it. But just highlighting one uh, of these verses, verse 13, if you skip forward, here are some of the lyrics to this song. They say, with your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed with your faithful love. Why did you do all this? Because you love us. And with that love, you will lead the people you have redeemed, the people you have bought back from slavery. And you will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. This almost acts as a summary of what the book of Exodus is. You love your people, therefore you bought them back from slavery and you're going to bring them to a new home. When Pharaoh's horses with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the water of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. And then the prophetess Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women came out following her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. And just... One more point, because if you don't pay attention to the context, it does feel like they're like, yay, Egyptians died, which seems kind of strange. But if you think about the story in context, they're not rejoicing at the Egyptians' death as much as they are rejoicing at their salvation. God has saved us. Thank you, God. That's the point of the song. And there's actually a strange parallel with what we do almost every Sunday, all right? We don't say, yay, Jesus died. <laughs> We say, yay, God saved us. And there was such a high cost. And it's tragic that God had to pay that high of a cost to save us. But we are so grateful that he was willing. And so we praise him. They're not rejoicing at Egyptians' death. They're rejoicing at God's salvation. And so as we take all the things happening in our own lives together, I would love us to close this time by uniting together, doing what the Israelites did, because I think it's fitting to celebrate God together. When God makes a way, take it. So we're going to do this a cappella because we want our worship team members to be able to go to connection groups. But would you unite in song with me? And let's sing this together to celebrate who this God is.
Thank you that that is who you are. You are the one who made a way for us when sin had us in slavery. You provided salvation, and there was such a high cost. And we don't we don't rejoice at your death, Jesus. We rejoice that you loved us so much that you were willing to pay that price to give us and the world life in you and through you. And so, God, I pray that in recognition of that, we would not take this amazing gift for granted. That we would continue uniting together in praise of you. And that we would do this in our own lives as well. God, help us not look to our immediate circumstances to define whether or not we're being faithful. But to look to you, to your spirit's leading and guiding and empower. Help us to listen well to your spirit's voice and obey when you lead us, even if we do that fearfully. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.